Welcome to the first episode of the Deliberately Better podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Damon Ashworth, and I'm joined by Dr. James Gillard. Welcome. Thanks, Damon. Pleasure to be here and um, a pleasure to sort of get this up and running with you. Maybe the first thing we should do is uh, just talk a little bit about what we do for work and also why you're interested in doing this podcast with me. I'm an osteopath based uh, down in Geelong. I have a background and an interest in in chronic pain, paediatrics and working with the elderly. Uh, So I split my time part-time between private practice and and then part-time in uh, aged care pain management. And I think part of the reason I, I really wanted to do this podcast with you was that you know I, I work a lot with people who are suffering from chronic pain or, or from chronic disease and I think the you know the, the process that you've sort of established is one really useful tool for being able to make and, and modify habits and, and behavior changes to make them sustainable which I can really see being beneficial for people's overall health. Yeah, and sorry to sound naive, but for people that don't know, can you just describe a bit more what an osteopath is and what they do? I guess we're trained to look holistically at the body. And so we really want to find what's stopping the, the body from functioning as normal or, or getting better on its own. So we're looking for mechanical obstructions to, to normal physiology. And we treat using our hands and, and provide lifestyle advice and, and rehabilitation advice as well to try and work out how everything sort of fits together and functions as a unit. Okay, perfect. There would be things that I really don't have the same level of knowledge that you have with, especially with the body and how that works and how it all fits together. So, you know, as we go along, as there's things I'm trying to improve, I might just pick your brains about different topics and yeah, get your expert feedback. Great. Yeah, I'm sure I can, the same can be said for you. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your background, Damon, and you know, what you do and you know, what sort of sparked your interest in, in really developing this deliberately better process? Yeah, I am a clinical psychologist. I work in private practice in Melbourne. At the moment, because of COVID, I'm doing three days of telehealth a week. So I'm seeing people over video. And then two days a week, I've got the Centre for Clinical Psychology in Carlton. I'll see people face to face. I was in Vanuatu for 20 months before that, volunteering. And I noticed while I was over there that unfortunately, some of my healthy habits kind of slipped a little bit. You know, I wasn't being as active as I used to be. I wasn't playing sport as much. And I was, my diet was quite carb heavy. So I noticed that while I was over there that, yeah, I wasn't in as good as good a health as I wanted to be. Coming back to Melbourne, being here a bit earlier than I expected to be, I really wanted to get back to this idea of deliberately better, which I had before I went. And that's around, can we be deliberate about making changes to our health in a sustainable way? So it's about creating lifestyle changes rather than just saying, I'm going to do this for two weeks and then go back. Can we create sustainable changes that lead to long-term health gains? That's a bit where the difficulty comes in you know with lifestyle changes that often we get excited about an idea or you know we're motivated to make changes based on you know certain circumstances in our life but the real difficulty is how do you make that sustainable so that you can really get the benefits of it long term Thankfully, there's been quite a bit of research into this area. Uh, Even Mm. at a government level now, they're starting to come up with nudge units where they're using some of the science of behavioral economics to slightly Mm. nudge people in the right direction, to push them towards making it easier to make those healthy choices. So a supermarket might be one example. The checkouts, and you usually find that there's candy or sweets at the checkouts. Mm. And what we've noticed is Mm. that 
by the time you've done a full shock, we know that our willpower is kind of diminished. It's great if you want to sell chocolate to put it there, but it's not so good for our health. So what would happen if we switch that up and we put some fresh fruit there? Would that get people to eat fruit or would it just prevent them from eating as much chocolate? And little changes like that can make a big difference over time. Yeah, Yeah, that's really interesting. How would you describe the deliberately better process? So it's a 10-step process. First one is set your intention. So you want to figure out which skill you would most like to learn that you would be willing to spend 20 hours of deliberate practice learning. Step two is to seek out an expert. So to find someone in this skill who has done what you would like to do or has helped at least five other people to do what you want to do. Step three is figure out the best strategy. So find out from this expert or from what you've read how to deconstruct this skill and figure out which sub-skills are likely to give you the most significant improvements in the shortest period of time. Step four is develop your personalized plan. So based on what the expert recommends, determine which sub-skills or strategies you should try first. Also find out what the minimal effective dose is with these strategies to obtain the results you want to achieve. Step five is a baseline assessment. So obtain baseline data of where you're at with the overall skill and your targets for improvement. Also obtain baseline measurements of anything else that you would like to improve, but are not targeting directly. Step six is to implement your plan and deliberately practice and try to improve it, ideally for at least 20 hours. Step seven is troubleshooting. So if things do not progress as you had hoped, make sure you have a plan to address the problem. Step eight is a post-intervention assessment. So conduct a final assessment to measure how much you have improved. You will find out how much your skills have improved since your starting point, which was step five and the impact that this has had. Step nine is relapse prevention. So identify the primary triggers and traps that could lead to the skill getting worse for you in the future. Then reflect on the strategies that help you to break out of these negative cycles in the past. And step 10 is an ongoing self-management plan. So finally, determine which strategies are going to help you to maintain the skills that you have learned. Mm. I think what I really like about how that's set up is it's really methodical, it's well-structured, and it's easy to follow. And I understand you've also been putting together a book that really outlines these steps a little bit more elaborately, and it's sort of centered and focused around sleep. It's called Deliberately Better Sleep. It has a chapter on each of those steps, and it really breaks it down and shows you how to put that into place. What I was maybe thinking for this first month is to apply this and to use all these strategies that I've mentioned in the book and to see how Mm -hmm. much I can improve my sleep. Not that I feel like my sleep is that problematic, but there are still times that I fall into some bad habits. If I'm deliberate about it, it'd be Mm. really interesting to see how much it does improve. Yeah, I guess, you know, part of the the process was there making or finding um, some baseline measurements. How how we sort of go about that? Well, luckily, I've got (laughs) two trackers that I use. The first one is called Aura Ring. Now, this is (laughs) relatively new and it's pretty expensive. So I think they retail for about $2.99 US. And they look just like a normal ring, but you wear them Mm -hmm. on your finger. And what that tracks is a few different things. It looks at your readiness score, which is kind of a measure of fatigue or or how well prepared you are for the day. It's got a sleep score, which it gives out of 100. And that tells you how good a quality sleep you had. Are you sleeping at the right time? What is your heart rate doing during the night? So how stressed are you? How quickly do you get into that lowest heart rate? It's got a lot of different variables that account for that overall sleep score. And then the last one is activity score. I think I would track all Mm -hmm. those three things using the Aura Ring. And I've also got a Fitbit, which I use as well. And that would have a nice comparing data to be able to see, okay, is it consistent across it? Are the changes real changes or are they just on on one apparatus? Yeah, you really are a scientist. (laughs) I I like to think about it I think I'm pretty geeky when it comes to sleep but I I look forward to 
to doing these things because then it shows to me that, you know, even little changes can make a big difference. And then I've got mm. more belief when I'm talking to patients with sleep difficulties about that. Damon, obviously you're an expert when it comes to you know, a lot of these things focused around sleep. Um, will you use other resources? You know, what kinds of things will you look at there? In terms of individualized plans, probably the best thing to do is to, to look at the research. There mm-hmm. are maybe five strategies that have a lot of supported evidence as being effective. One mm-hmm. is stim- stimulus mm-hmm. control, which is about getting people to not spend too much time in the bed awake, not doing things in the bed like reading, yep. eating, studying, any of that. Going to bed only when they feel sleepy, getting out of bed if they can't sleep up after about 15 to 20 minutes and trying to get up at the same time each day and not nap during the day. So that's got the most evidence, I would say, as an individual intervention. Um, we've also got sleep restriction, which is about cutting down how yep. much time people spend in bed, again, only to the amount of time that they really need for sleep. So if you want to get seven hours on average a night, you should probably only be in bed for seven and a half hours. The more consistent that is, the better. Relaxation strategies have a bit of evidence behind them, especially doing that if you're feeling stressed during the day and winding down before bed at night. And then there's another one called paradoxical intention. This one isn't used too much, but it can be quite effective. And that's just if people are putting too much pressure on themselves to get to sleep, tell them to go to bed, turn the light off and just try to see how long they can stay awake, not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And then that takes that pressure down. And generally people can have a better quality of sleep once they get to sleep. It sounds like that's a whole another podcast, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and a few of those put together are kind of considered CBTI, where you challenge the beliefs a little right. bit and you look at the sleep scheduling uh, and you do some relaxation as well. Yeah, very interesting. I think for me, the, the habit that I'd really like to cultivate is meditation. And yeah. I've sort of had periods and bouts where, you know, I've done this quite consistently and, you know, I really notice the difference. What you do find is when life becomes busy and, you know, there's lots of different things going on. It's one of those first things that seems to um, fall by the wayside. I'd really like to make a point of, of making that a priority in my life as, and, and incorporate it as part of my routine. That sounds great. How do you meditate when you normally do it? I usually use an app called 10% Happier. I found it's, it's really quite useful in that, it, you know, they run through various different courses and focuses and they incorporate an element of learning, which is a video and an, an interview with an expert. And then they usually follow that with a, a meditation as well, based on the skill sets that you've, you've just gone through in the learning phase. I guess what I found is that some of those then become, you know, a, a longer period or a longer chunk of time, up to 20, 25 minutes, trying to do it as a as a morning routine and I found that you know then I didn't have enough time to get ready for work etc when is the best time of the day to do it for you do you think I like to do it first thing but I've also found it's not a bad thing to do um, at lunchtime as well sometimes I find that that's also a good opportunity Mm -hmm. if we're going to be deliberate about it like what would be realistic for you over the next month how often would you like to practice when would you like to I mean ideally I think I'd, I'd like to do it twice a day but I think in terms of making it more realistic and achievable perhaps we'll do it once a day and first thing in the morning yeah Yeah. and just by using that app yeah I think that for me I found it quite helpful so yeah I know there's quite a few other apps that are available to us and resources but I've found that that 
sort of resonates quite well with me. Do you know much about Dan Harris's story? I know a little bit, certainly have read into his work probably extensively as what you have, so I'm happy <laughs> for you to fill me in. Yeah, he was on a news program and he had a panic attack live on the news and it was after mm. that that really led to him looking into meditation as a way. I really like the concept of 10% happier as a title as well because he's, he's not mm. saying this is going to fix all your problems, but if no. you could get into a regular practice of something where it, it helps you to focus 10% better or to feel 10% less stressed or to feel 10% happier, then that's something. Yeah, I think what's you know really exciting about it is it's something that we can control and there's a lot of evidence coming out now about the benefits for it. If you're looking at incorporating a skill that might take you 10 to 20 minutes a day, I think it's a really worthwhile investment. Yeah, definitely. What would you hope that it would improve if you were to do it every day for a month? The benefits are pretty wide ranging. I'd really like to use it as a as a way to, I guess, improve relationships, as a way of managing stress, improving sleep, all those different changes that it's sort of associated with. How do you think being more mindful or, or meditating could improve relationships? Well, I think as a result of any interaction, there's often conflicts and I think being able to observe it and identify it before you react emotionally and I think that's only going to stop you from saying things that may be hurtful to another person or, you know, from getting yourself so worked up that you're becoming upset yourself. So there's that awareness of what's going on internally so it's not as automatic? Yes. I'd also imagine that it would be a greater ability to then be less distracted by maybe random thoughts or things that take you away, help you to be more present too? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I've certainly at times been labeled as a bit of a daydreamer. If you are more aware of of what's going on and you can be absolutely more present with your environment and, and the people that you're interacting with. Perfect. Let's say you see some patients and you notice that they're expressing some of these difficulties. Would you ever mention mindfulness or meditation as a potential solution? You have to be careful with, you know, what's in your scope of practice here. Certainly if you're noticing that you know someone might be having difficulties with you know relationship issues or high stress and anger issues then it would certainly be a referral from our end but you know, identifying that perhaps stress plays a, a role in someone's presenting complaint yeah and I guess providing resources and information about have you tried this and you know did you know that you know something like meditation or relaxation can really help with things like this as well is you know a really valid treatment tool and would you ever mention something that has benefited you in a session or do you prefer to just keep yourself out of the session no i think i probably steer clear of that and and probably tend to reflect a little bit more on the on what the research says i guess making it personal can make it a little bit more human for people sometimes yeah I think I, I try to do it sparingly and generally only when I think it's something that could help to normalize the situation and also just to vouch for something as well. So, you know, if somebody's mm. asking about meditation, I can say, yeah, there's a lot of science behind it, but I've also gone on a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat and I wouldn't recommend that because it wasn't <laughs> fun at all to so just be silent and not do anything else. But I do practice 10 minutes a day myself and I find that quite helpful. If people want to come and see you, uh, how can they find out about you more or where can they book in? You can sort of follow me through the social media platforms, um, Jay Gillard Osteopath. I work at a clinic uh, in Geelong called Mandala Wellness and you can book online through their website. Also, I have a website that um, I tend to write down a few musings about life and health and also try and sort of keep up to date with the latest 
research there. That's mindmattermotion.com.au. I'm hoping this could be, you know, a monthly thing for us where we do review how we've gone with what we're focused on. So me with sleep, you with meditation, and then hopefully Mm -hmm. we'll set a new goal each month as well. Certainly puts a little bit of a challenge for the next month and, you know, we can put the deliberately better process to the test. Yeah, exactly. It's one thing to write about it, but I think to be able to to put it into action and to see the results and then to be able to show people those results, hopefully that's where the real benefit comes. And Dame, if people want to get a hold of yourself, I mean, mm-hmm. given that, you know, everything else that's going on as well, there's certainly people out there who would be struggling with um, various issues because of the restrictions that we've been under. How can they find you? I'd say the best place would be damonashworthpsychology.com. On there, you can send me a message through the contact page. It's also got a link where you can book in directly for a session if you want to. Under Medicare, there, there can be a rebate. So if you're living in Australia and you want to see me through video or in person, you do get a bit of money back. So it's not as expensive. If you're overseas, you can still book in for sessions and I, I can offer a reduced rate if people can't afford it otherwise. I've got the Deliberately Better website as well, but at this stage we're, we're trying to build some sleep courses and things, so that's not up and running or complete yet. Uh, the Centre for Clinical Psychology, they've also got a website, ccp.net.au, and you can book in with me through there as well. Great. So we'll finish up there for today and uh, good luck for the next month. No worries, Dame. You too. Lovely to chat. You too. Bye.